Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Stripe Tap to Pay on iPhone came along and changed everything. With Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. No more juggling different methods. Just a simple tap on my iPhone and transactions are complete. What's truly remarkable is how Stripe caters to all my customers' preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Stripe ensures a smooth checkout experience every time. Setting up Stripe was a breeze, taking just minutes to get up and running. From local markets to global retailers, Stripe helped me expand my reach and grow my business with ease. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Thank you to everyone who supports Daily Tech News Show directly. To find out more, head to dailytechnewsshow.com slash support. This is the Daily Tech News for Friday, July 27th, 2018. From Los Angeles, I'm Tom Merritt. And from Studio Feline, I am Sarah Lane. And from Studio Hack 5, I am Shannon Morse. Also joining us for the roundtable today, very happy to have back with us Rob DeMillo, CTO of Nimble Collective. How's it going, Rob? It's good. I'm not in a studio, but at San Francisco. Yeah, well, <laughs> got that know, going for me. They're all, you call it a studio. You've got a, you got a headset on, you got a laptop, you're streaming. It's a studio. <laughs> That's true. That's actually the message of our company. Just pop up a studio. Here. There you go. See, you're on brand even. Uh, also with us, of course, we're very happy to have back our producer, Roger Chang. Roger, we missed you desperately yesterday. I'm not even joking. <laughs> oh, well, that's good to know. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, trying to host the show and do the screens was... Uh, that never works. A nightmare on my brain. Uh, so yes, <laughs> we're very happy to have Roger back. And uh, it's our roundtable show. This is the show we do once a month where we expand the regular show into full-fledged roundtable discussion, do a full hour of these discussions with all of us. And while all of our topics cover the news of the day, we will still start with a few tech things you should know. MoviePass's service was unable to process ticket requests on Thursday. Why? Well, MoviePass hadn't paid the company that processes its payments. Parent company Helios and Matheson borrowed $6 million to pay that company and got everything working again. However, technical issues were blamed for continued outages on Friday. And this loan is half due August 1st with a total due August 5th. That's not looking good. I'm sorry. It does not. Uh, Twitter reported monthly active users fell by 1 million as it removed bots and spam and failed to attract new users. Twitter says the user numbers will continue to fall this year because of both of those things. Twitter says it's prioritizing cleaning up the platform over near-term product improvements that could drive up usage. Twitter's daily active users were up 11%, though. That's the seventh quarter of daily active user growth. Twitter also reported its third straight quarter of positive income at $100 million. And for the first time, overseas revenue contributed the the majority of Twitter's ad sales. 
Telegram added a feature called Passport, which it's called, it calls its phase two of its Telegram login project. So a user can upload their ID to Telegram storage. It's protected then by end-to-end encryption. And then a website that requires an ID could implement Telegram Passport support instead of requiring an upload of their own. ePayments is one of the first to support this new feature. And Google updated its Play Store app submission guidelines. It now explicitly bans apps that appeal to children but contain adult themes. Apps that facilitate the sales of explosives, firearms, ammunition, or firearm accessories. Apps that are themselves cryptocurrency miners. Uh, Google also now bans apps with repetitive content in order to stop multiple versions made from templates. And apps that are primarily made of ads, as well as apps that intentionally mislead users. LinkedIn added the ability to send contacts up to a one-minute voice message. That's on its iOS and Android app. Uh, Messages can be played back on the website as well if you receive one, as well as the apps. Finally, a Wilmington, Delaware jury awarded IBM $83.5 million in cash, not coupons, after finding the Groupon infringed four of IBM's e-commerce patents. Other companies had already paid IBM a license to use. IBM owns more than 45,000 patents, and IP licensing revenue brought the company $1.19 billion back in 2017. Uh, Groupon's legal defense argued that IBM never used the patents and wanted to extract money from other companies, but that didn't work for that jury. So possible appeals coming, but for now, IBM beats Groupon. All right, let's get into the roundtable discussion, Sarah. Let's do it. And Shannon, we're going to start with you. This is a topic that we've covered on DTNS already this week. The idea that Google said, hey, physical keys are working out for us. Our employees aren't getting fished. By the way, we have one of our own. Uh, But the idea of physical keys being the most reliable way to make sure that you're not vulnerable to attacks is something that we're hearing more and more about. So what are your initial thoughts? Yeah, so I have a lot of thoughts on this just because, you know, from my my security background, I've always been really a big proponent of getting out physical security keys. And the big business that's really been behind this as far as Fido goes and U2F has always been Yubico with their YubiKey. So now we're seeing this Google one. And we've also seen kind of a difference in opinion between Yubico and Google as far as Bluetooth is concerned. Uh, but it's also kind of interesting seeing Google come out with their own just in particular because uh, Yubico has always been the most popular one on the market. Uh, So I really just wanted to touch base on like why these are so important and why they exist in the first place because a lot of people still don't use them as well as if we think for consideration if they're actually going to get adopted by a wider audience and if Bluetooth itself is going to be a secure option for most people. So are 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 they proposing that these keys are for consumers or for businesses? What's the, what's the, they're they're starting selling them to businesses now, but they say they will make them available for consumers uh, soon. Okay. Yeah. So interestingly, it's going to be available in a couple of different bundles. So they're doing the USB and Bluetooth versions of the key. It's called the Titan security key and it's going to cost 50 bucks. But if you want to buy them separately, you can just get the USB version for like $20 or the Bluetooth version for 25 bucks. Now, in my experience working, um, you know, going to DEF CON, for example, in like two weeks, we've always seen Bluetooth hacks. We've seen BLE hacks. We've seen Bluetooth 4.0 
3.0 hacks. And this is really, really common. And it was one of the main reasons why I always suggest that, you know, a headphone jack should still exist on a phone, for example. So seeing uh, Ubico's, uh, for example, their reply to this, uh, Ubico actually said that they had started initiating using Bluetooth for physical keys. However, and they also contributed to some of the development for the U2F standards with BLE, but they decided against it, uh, most, mostly just because of security, usability, and durability. So they said that the security assurance levels were not as good as NFC and physical USB because obviously physical USB is going to be the most secure option because there is no wireless protocol happening between the device and your laptop, for example, uh, but also because it requires batteries and pairing that could offer poor user experience, which would likely turn off consumers in the long run if they wanted to get more people interested in this. So seeing that Google has decided to go ahead and go with Bluetooth for their security key, even though these hacks are quite prominent with that protocol is, in my opinion, kind of unassuring. And I personally would want to stay with a key that does not offer Bluetooth just so I don't even have that factor even remotely capable for a hack in any of my devices. So so they probably, I mean, <clears throat> it's not just the Bluetooth protocol, right? They probably yeah. have... Uh, uh, security protocols at either end that are locking people out. So it's, it's more secure than like your Fitbit. I would hope so. They, they did state mm -hmm. that uh, they have firmware built into these security keys uh, that's supposed to implement some kind of security on top of there. Of course, we don't know exactly what all of that security is that's going into these physical keys, but it is run on, on top of that same U2F uh, implementation, those same kind of standards as the, uh, the FIDO Alliance currently has. So hopefully they're secure, but I do worry a little bit that like at a coming DEF CON, for example, we oh, yeah. might see a hack happen with one of these Google security tokens. It's completely possible. And it's not outside of a, a current thought process that these things could be a, a possibility in the future. Yeah. I, and and it's, this is the debate between like convenience versus ultimate security. Exactly. Right? right. Going through the hassle of like plugging something in a USB port. Like that's a hassle. Like animals, you know, plugging yeah. through the USB well, port. <laughs> um, but yeah. Ubico offers an NFC version. I mean, and that's mm -hmm. pretty secure. So you, you can have the convenience and the security. I'm not sure why Google decided to go with Bluetooth. You leave a dongle in your pocket. That's yeah. why. Right. It's very press odd. It. You still have to click the button, right? Yeah, you do still have yeah. to click some kind of button or give it some kind of assurance that you have that physical token within your your being with uh, on your person in some sense or plugged into your computer if you're just straight up using USB instead. So why they included Bluetooth, I'm not quite sure as well. I would much prefer that they just include USB and maybe NFC as well, since those protocols are already implemented in so many other uh, physical security tokens, and we know that they are much more secure. Uh, now, on that front as well, I do wonder if these are going to end up getting adopted by a wider range of an audience now that Google has implemented their own, because while I know of the Ubico name, and that's the most popular one within like the security community, a lot of people don't use physical tokens outside of the security community because they don't know that they exist. Mm -hmm. So 
so given that Google, this huge popular name, they have, you know, Google homes all over the place and everything like that. Now they exist and they're a household brand, a household name. I am curious if that's going to help more people adopt this kind of uh, security factor as opposed to using SMS for two-factor authentication or applications for two-factor authentication, because neither of those is as secure as a physical token. Well, and with all the data breaches that have happened in the enterprise over the years and and, and will continue to, I can absolutely see why a a large company like Google, where there are security measures and people who are interested in what might be going on behind the scenes and lots of other companies, why an IT department might be like, you got to do this, everybody. Sorry, don't lose your and if you do, we'll figure it out. But it does it does really kind of 180 this whole trend that consumers have been enjoying and hoping to enjoy more, myself one of them, to like get rid of the wallets because everything's digital and yeah. that whole idea of not having things to lose on your person. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. I mean, I have lost my keychain before. So if I had a U2F token on my keychain, I would have lost that at the same time. But luckily I wasn't using it quite yet. I haven't lost my keychain since then because I protect it much better now. But um, usually what you find is like with a two-factor authentication application on your phone, that's more likely to get stolen because people see a phone and they think like that's valuable. That would be a good thing to steal when they see a key on a keychain or a little token, like a little flash drive or something that's not as likely to get stolen. So of course you look at it that way, you think, well, they might be a little bit more secure in that sense. They're also air gapped in a sense as well. Mm -hmm. So you can't hack a physical key like that unless you have that Bluetooth turned on, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, and I think it's worth pointing out too that that you know Shannon works in the rarefied air of of you know trying to get to as close to zero risk as possible. For folks out there using text messaging as their second factor, this Bluetooth dongle is way more secure uh, yeah. than that. So you know it's it's all where you are on on the gradient, right? Uh, Shannon's rightly comparing it to. NFC or USB as when she says it's not as secure. It's still more secure than all the other options. It's actually probably, I don't know, Shannon, do you think it's more secure than an authenticator app? Because that can be fished, whereas the Bluetooth would have to be intercepted. And I feel like that's a lower exactly. risk. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. You're exactly right with that. The, the, the other thing that occurs to me is if, if they get the Bluetooth side secure and it does work on a dongle, um, processors are fast enough on the phone, and there's a there's a fingerprint ID on the phone. I I would imagine that Google's end game, and probably the reason they have Bluetooth, is to move the whole thing to the phone. I I just wonder why they aren't, and, and maybe they are, and we just haven't seen it. I, I'm willing to accept that, but I'm I'm wondering why there isn't more documentation about the Bluetooth implementation. Maybe it's on the FIDO site, and I just assume anybody who's really cares about it will go find it. But but usually when you put out something like this, you you make it fully auditable, and you say, like, this is what we're doing. In case you want to poke holes in it, this is why we think it's super secure. And I, Shannon, I, it doesn't sound like either one of us have seen that from Google on the Bluetooth side. I haven't, and I would love to see more documentation on that, even just some clarification from Google as far as what kind of Bluetooth implementation they're choosing to use, because For example, Bluetooth 5.0 is more secure than Bluetooth 4.0. Now, we do know that it's using BLE, Mm -hmm. but I want more information than just telling me that it's BLE because, you know, they've built some standards on top of that. And I would like to know if they're using all of those standards. 
But it would be interesting if it got built into the phone. Let's 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 jump to the idea that like okay, that let's say cool. they've secured this. Uh, like it's, built into Android. Yeah, it's getting really close to Steve Gibson's squirrel situation. You know, uh, <laughs> you need to explain that to me. <laughs> I I don't think I could explain it off the top of my head right now. But the idea is you have authentication, which re- only requires your device. You can do it all on the device. Yeah. yeah, that would be amazing. And it would it would give so many people so much more convenience than what we currently have. Yeah. You know, I, I still have a headache trying to get anybody in my friends and family to actually implement two factor authentication on their accounts unless it's forced by the company that they're signing up with. If it's not forced, they're not going to do it because they right. just look at it and think, oh, no, that's that's too much work. I don't want to put in a code every single time I log in. I'm just like, well, you're putting in your password already. You yeah. might as well. <laughs> so, how many how many Android users are out there in, in this group? I I do I do multi use. I use iOS and Android. So they've gotten pretty good at uh, when you're doing two factor authentication. They've gotten pretty good at just you look at your phone or you look at your Android watch and you touch a button. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And and I can see them taking the secure measures that they're doing with this UTF dongle and moving it to a phone using surgery in the phone and using, using bioidentification on the phone to make sure that you're trying to get access to this website or application. You have your device on you and you are you like, those are really the three things that you need. And then you just have to secure all the pathways between them. There's Although sometimes security is like, I hate to admit this, but I am currently locked out of my one password account because I can't remember my master pass because I oh, didn't no. write it down somewhere and put it in a drawer. And it's like darn near impossible to get back in. As there it should are lots be. of like, yes, yeah. exactly. Like there's like tutorials online that lead you nowhere. Um, and so I'm like, all right, I'll just change all my passwords and start over. Now I, you know, because it's like, it was supposed to be human proof but it human proofed me out of my own human proofing <laughs> well and that's Which what is- fido's overriding mission is if people don't know fido is a multi-company effort it's a it's it's not owned by google it's not a single company uh and the idea is to come up with a system that's more secure than passwords but easier to use for people yeah, Fido's an alliance of mm-hmm. companies, Thank and, you. That's and they're all they're all trying to work towards the same thing, and they're trying to make uh, the general populace more secure by adding this kind of convenience with these physical tokens, for example, as uh, an option for people. Mm-hmm. And I think that they're really going in the right direction, but there's still a lot of like education that we need to get out there as far as how these things work and why they're better than SMS text messaging and stuff like that. Cause if you don't know, like your SMS phone number, it could be cloned on a second SIM card by social engineering your phone carrier. And it's happened multiple times, not just to like journalists, which of course they've written stories about their, their experiences, Mm -hmm. but also like normal day-to-day people that aren't in a public eye. So it's kind of a scary thing. If you think about it, like if you have a stalker or if you have some kind of enemy in school or something like that, that knows your phone number and can social engineer that information, uh, then you run that possibility of having your, your SIM, uh, just clone to a second device and getting all of those SMS two factor authentication codes sent to that second device instead of your phone. 
and then other people could log into your accounts. And that's really one of the biggest things that the biggest proponents that they're trying to fight against is the abilities for, you know, attackers to target people and be able to run these kind of attacks against them. And, um, I props to Fido for, you know, fighting mm-hmm. this hard fight. Yeah. But there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. I, how does how does Fido connect with the RSA? Does does it at all or I don't think so, but I'll have to check on that for you. Because the RSA is also it's another alliance that, that and yeah. they, they tried doing this um in the late nineties, I want to say, early two yeah. thousands with with credit card devices that were essentially two factor authentications like we have on the phone right now. Yeah, yeah. I remember that. <laughs> and then RSA got hacked too. Uh huh. <laughs> Their code well, did. Which, which, by the way, is interesting because I, I don't. You guys, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think Google has been hacked ever. Is that true? Um, mm. I would never want to say never I, like I, that. I don't. I don't think they. I, I might be wrong, but I. I, I, mean, I know that. I'm they, sure I know they, their drive drive and photo systems have not. I know I'm that. sure they have been hacked because they're involved in so many different things that there must be some low level system at some point, especially earlier than the days, yeah. you know, in in the early 2000s. But, but yeah, uh, I mean, your your point could still be well made. You rarely, you, you when have you heard of Google breach right. uh, in the news? And and they made a big deal earlier this week before they announced that they were selling the keys that implementing keys in their company reduced phishing attacks inside to zero which implies that there were phishing there there mm-hmm. there were successful phishing attacks inside google yeah. before that so they, they just didn't make it public good point so i have a question for y'all mm-hmm. and yes i said y'all again <laughs> um do you currently use a physical token for two-factor authentication to use 2fa at all what do you what do you use i, have I obviously use a physical token myself but i use an app as a backup i, I use an app only so I've got well, I've got two apps, but I uh, I use two F uh, two FA, and I use uh, Google Authenticator, and I forgot the other one. But I, yeah, I use two of them. I use Yubico, uh, YubiKey, uh, for certain things that I I really care about. I mean, I you know it's all a matter of thing. But I, I log in on devices that don't have a USB slot quite often, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so I I generally rely on the Authenticator app. I don't use Authy, even though I've heard Authy is great, because the big advantage of using Authy is that Authy will store your one-time codes in the cloud, and I feel mm-hmm. like, well, that's kind of <laughs> against the point. I'm sure Authy's very secure about it, but no one can get my code from the cloud if it's not in the cloud, so <laughs> Authenticator's where I go. I use Authy. Oh! Do you use store it in the cloud? I do. Oh, yep. Okay. That's, oh, I know. Good to know. <laughs> it's <laughs> one convenience that I have chosen to take. <laughs> well, that uh, that light jazz music uh, from the Andrew Allen Trio uh, reminds us that it is time to move to the next topic. And uh, this one's a fun one. Uh, Rob, we want to talk about liquid water on Mars. Yeah, this this, <laughs> this goes back to, to my old life. But uh, the other week, there was a... There, the, uh, the ESA folks, the European Space Agency, announced that they completed a seven-year study um, and had determined that there is actually water underneath the substrate in Mars at the South Pole at the very least. And they did this through their uh, Mars, uh, Mars Explorer, or Mars Express, sorry. So, <clears throat> Which is an orbiter, right? It's an orbiter, yeah. yeah. They launched Mars Express in 2003, I think. So it's been up there for a long time. And it has one of the instruments that it has on there is is something called MARSIS, which is uh, Mars Advanced Radar for subsurface and ionospheric sounding. I think is what it stands for. <clears throat> and 
its whole purpose in life was to look underneath the substrate. It's just looking for essentially geographic signatures of things that, that may be of interest to future explorers of Mars. Uh, and it suddenly occurred to them that if they had reduced the resolution a little bit on um, the, the, their side imaging radar, their um, uh, 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 the SAR system, the, the uh, synthetic aperture radar, that they could get down to the resolution where they could detect substrate water. And so they did that, but it took them a long time. They, so <clears throat> NASA has a long history of updating firmware on spacecraft while they're in mission. Uh, <laughs> and it's very, that sounds like a bad idea. Very, very frightening. I, when, I, when I was working in Jet Propulsion, we were on um, uh, Voyager, was, was one of our, our, our programs. And before I arrived, they had done this whole thing where they, 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 they turned Voyager into something that could make it all the way out to Uranus, which it was never designed to do. And they did that through a firmware upgrade. And so, you know, they've got everyone checking the code and they check the code twice and, they, you know, three times, four times. And then there's at one moment where somebody punches a button. And then they wait, you know, 22 minutes. With, yeah. <laughs> goes to the spacecraft, and the spacecraft reboots, and hopefully they hear from it again. They do this a lot, um, and they did I it. I don't even want to do that with my router in my garage. No, no, no. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I do, but yeah, that makes my, me nervous enough. My DevOps uh, director here does things on the phone all the time, and I'm like, wow, okay. <laughs> so anyway, so they did this. They did this with the Marsis, um, and they reduced uh, they reduced the resolution path, and they took a couple swipes over the South Pole, and and sure enough, just off to the southwest, I think, of the northwest of the of the pole, um, they got water signatures back. And to um, uh, synthetic aperture radar, and I, sh- I should probably explain what that is. There there are several types of radars that are employed on aircraft and, and uh, cars now and spacecraft. And uh, s- uh, synthetic aperture radar just basically means that they're using the motion of the spacecraft or of the aircraft to create a virtual lens for the radar beam. So typical radar, you send out a signal, either light or sound or, or radio waves, and it bounces back and it gets picked up. Uh, and then you, you build up an image off of that. Uh, in the case of SAR, uh, you're using a moving spacecraft or a moving um, airplane to essentially shoot a beam and then catch it. <laughs> so you shoot a beam in one direction, and then you, you know what the, the incidence angle is supposed to be, and you, the spacecraft keeps moving, and you catch it at the other end, and you've effectively formed a, a large radar dish. Uh, and you do that in several dozen sweeps uh, in the area that you want to take a look at something. Um, there's some There's some complex math that shows how which your resolution is based off of uh, how fast the spacecraft's moving and all that other happy stuff. But uh, so they did that, and and, and they, they they changed Marsis so that it had a smaller uh, smaller level of resolution, and they got back a signature of water about a mile underneath the surface. And <clears throat> what that looks like on a radar beam uh, is nothing. So if uh, you think of radar as reflecting off of an object and the type of scattering that you get back tells you information about what it just bounced off of. Um, water is absorbent uh, to SAR, and so you don't get a signal back. And so if you hit water, you get black, right? And what, uh, what Roger's got on the screen here is, is essentially false color. So what's blue on that screen would have been black uh, when, when they got the data back. So people got very excited. So uh, the evidence is 
not 100% in yet. Uh, it is strongly suggestive of there being water under the surface, which then leads to all sorts of interesting questions. Like, what is that water? Like, what is it like? What happens to water that is left behind on Mars? Uh, a lot of people have a lot of theories about all of it, but it, it means a lot of things to us. It means a lot about the the geographic evolution of the planet it also means that there is a potential for uh sending habitats to mars because if there's water you can you, even if it's heavily salinated and it's probably very brackish water uh you can you can filter the salt out and, and yeah because the, the and i know you mentioned this but the temperature is below freezing well below freezing so well it has to be certain yeah. pretty salty because salt's lower the freezing yeah. uh, point of water it has to be pretty salty if it's liquid yeah, it, 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 Mars is kind of interesting because it's a, a third the size of the planet Earth, and, and so it's a third the, the gravitational pull, and so that that puts some upper limits on the kind of molecules that can just drift off into space. Like a lot of lighter molecules just leave, Go. yeah, you know. But the heavier molecules like water just stick around, and salt sticks around, and all this stuff. So, so yeah, it's interesting. So stuff. it's not something we're just going to pop a straw down and drink. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't. <laughs> First of all, I mean, because Tom, you can try that. You'll freeze. We're not going to. Well, I, I drink. I drink your milkshake. <laughs> I drink your Mars shake. I mean, are there indications of what minerals might be in the water on Mars based on what has been already seen in sediment on Mars that could prove beneficial to humans? Whether we could get it back somehow, or or or. Well, yeah, I mean, there's some logical guesses people are making, right? So, so the radar data is not going to tell you that because uh, water is not going to return a signal, so you're not going to see any sort of backscatter, and you're not going to be able to, to tell actually what's what's going on on the surface or under the surface. But we do have some fairly reasonable uh, idea of what's in the silicates in the soil, what's 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 the sand made out of, what uh, what the south polar ice cap which i think is where this is from i think they got the data from the south not the north so south polar ice cap so they have some idea of all those chemicals there and so yes they could uh put together some models and say okay so these particular chemical elements are in that soil we know for sure uh we know that the water's been there at least you know pick your time frame 12 million years whatever it is uh and so we know that the sediment, the the scent, I can't say the word, the sand, uh, <laughs> the sand around, around that area uh, has a certain ratio of filtering, filtering uh, uh, to 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 the chemicals that are going down. So they can guess what it might be like. And and there are extremophiles on Earth that can live in temperatures. Ready to pop the question. The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. With models at every point on the price-performance curve, you no longer have to make trade-offs between intelligence, speed, and cost. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skills and speed. And Haiku is the fastest and lowest-cost model on the market, perfectly designed for high-volume, high-speed use cases. 
Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to keep them at the frontier. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then Stripe tap to pay on iPhone came along and changed everything. With Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. No more juggling different methods. Just a simple tap on my iPhone and transactions are complete. What's truly remarkable is how Stripe caters to all my customers' preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Stripe ensures a smooth checkout experience every time. Setting up Stripe was a breeze, taking just minutes to get up and running. From local markets to global retailers, Stripe helped me expand my reach and grow my business with ease. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, Visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. That low mm-hmm. if there's liquid water. So, you know, immediately all the headlines jump to, you know, possibilities yeah. of life. But it is, you know, as you said, there are still some questions to be answered before you can be 100% certain that liquid water is there. Uh, in fact, there's a Chinese orbiter that's a, a, supposed to launch in July or August 2020, the Mars Global Remote Sensing Orbiter, which would be able to provide further data to help confirm this. But right now they're, they're saying it's more likely than not. So we're going to go with that assumption. Then if that's true, the question could be, you know, what possibility of some single cell life surviving there is there if there was ever life on mars that possibility becomes quite high if mars Mm -hmm. has always been dead then no there's probably not anything there right and or there could be fossilized material there Mm -hmm. uh, and Mm -hmm. bacterial bacterial sized fossils but yeah uh, there's a lot of possibilities that open up um but for me personally the the most exciting thing to me is it, it opens up the potential for human habitation yeah, because you can extract that water, desalinate it, and you know, I mean, not not that those things are easy. Dest- no, extracting no, no, it, desalinating it, are but tough, but drink, but it's possible. It becomes possible. Yeah. yeah, you can drink it. You can turn it into fuel. You can turn it into air. You can. I mean, it it, it saves a lot of uh, transportation <laughs> to and from the planet. So, yeah, because so there's definitely fish resource. aliens on <laughs> Mars. Yeah, if Doctor well, Who, if Doctor Who has taught us anything, yes, they're, Martian they're, salt I, cod. I do have a. I do have a question about how the um, SAR, is that how you say it, S-A-R, mm-hmm. um, how that works compared to LIDAR, which I know has been used on um, on planet Earth to find archaeological sites and things like that. So are they in any way, shape, or form similar to each other? Same principle. Uh, uh, the L in LIDAR is, it's either laser or light, I forget which one it is, but it... it um... Uh, it, it shoots a linear beam out, uh, so it's it's got a smaller um, penetration than than uh, radar waves do, or than radio waves do. Uh, but the concept is very very similar. So okay. any anything anything that sends out radiation and b- it measures what gets bounced back uh, is considered one of the R's. <laughs> one of the one of the uh, R's. One of the one of the, <laughs> one of the radars. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, because li- lighter is interesting. Actually, lighter works really well for. Uh, sorry, uh, lighter works really well for um, determining wake vortexes behind planes, because you can you can measure um, changes in the atmosphere. So you see the turbulence oh. uh, through lighter. So um, there was back when I was working for the FAA, we were doing a lot of experiments with with um, using lidar in the front of aircraft to to look at aircraft in front of that aircraft to make sure that they were avoiding the, mm. the, the wake vortex behind the wings. Very oh, interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. 
<laughs> so so we have one I can't remember the name of the other orbiter and Rob maybe you'll remember it. There there was an orbiter that that looks at a at a wavelength that was that it doesn't see the reflection that indicates the water. Uh, and mm-hmm. it wouldn't. So that it wouldn't. Yeah. So that so that one that one is sort of saying, well, we haven't seen anything, but then we wouldn't. Uh, you've got the the orbiter that that they've now sort of reanalyzed the data to be able to to see this reflection, and then we've mm-hmm. got the Chinese orbiter that could confirm it. Mm-hmm. But but you know, it would really confirm it is sending some something down there and start drilling around see if see if you spout a gusher. But, like yeah. what, what's involved with that? Is that just ridiculous to think about? It's not ridiculous to think about, but it, it uh, consider it's it's a mile down. That's, mm-hmm. I think it's I think it's over a mile down if I remember. Oh wow! And so it, it's hard to drill a mile here. Right? We do it. You know, there there are there mm-hmm. are there are scientific explorations and and oil drilling and all that stuff that goes that goes does go down that far. But it takes a lot of effort. And so to package up a drill that can go down a mile and shoot it off and get it to another planet uh, and have it do a, a drill down for a mile that's, that's asking that's asking a lot yeah. so you would have to be able to construct the drill and the drill bits there uh using available materials uh and have a robot essentially you know we were talking about 3d assembly before just, yeah just i was just thinking but we nasa is in the just finished the first phase of, of a three-phase competition to create uh, the ability to 3D print structures on Mars using Martian material. Most of that stuff they're making is is some kind of concrete analog, though. That's not going to help you with drilling, unfortunately. No, but you could you could. I mean, there's silicates in the soil, mm-hmm. and so with silicates you can make you know glass drills that are very mm-hmm. hard. And okay. That kind of stuff. So yeah, yeah, there's stuff you could do. Making some diamond drills on Mars, and then <laughs> break them up into rings and sell them back on Earth. That sounds like a Beatles song. <laughs> <laughs> Diamond drills on Mars. This is super exciting, though. The you know just just the idea of there's water on Mars, right? Like, yeah. however salty or or however small. What is it? Twenty five kilometers wide, one kilometer deep. Yeah, like it's, what's unclear to me though, Tom, is is if that that uh, that patch. That's all they looked at. Oh right, yeah. right. So it's it's unclear to me if they just stopped looking or if they're going to plan on looking in different areas at the same time. But no, I did read that they they want to keep looking because if they can find other indications of it, then that could mean there's there's sort of like Antarctica has uh, a, a hydraulic system that connects various lakes together under the ice. That would be yeah. super exciting. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. I kind of see Mars water as like the new charcoal water. (laughs) How is it good for me? It just is. It's from Mars. Yeah, it's it's really good stuff. It's like Fiji water, but way better. Unadulterated by human. (laughs) Gets bottled. Habitation. Yeah, they're shipped out through through Whole Foods. Yeah, it's great. (laughs) Ah, well, there is the music once again uh, that brings us to the end of this topic. Sarah, what do we have next? Well, you know, sometimes... Uh, when I think of what a Martian would be like or an alien of some kind, I think of teenagers because the older I get, the less I understand them. Um, well, because when you're a teenager, gonna... everyone else is an alien. And when you're an adult, the teenagers <laughs> yeah. are aliens. It's happened. I, I no longer understand a lot of teen behavior. We're going to focus on a really interesting article Taylor Lorenz wrote up at The Atlantic uh, titled, Teens Are Debating the News on Instagram. You might say, oh, okay, well, Instagram is being used. But this is actually a very interesting use case I was not familiar with beforehand, so somebody let me know if you've heard of the idea of flop accounts on Instagram. Now, a flop account to me, I was like, flop house? It's something that's like temporary. I don't, you know. No, it's actually really different. A flop account kind of refers to something equivalent to a fail account. So it's an account that is created 
and often has a variety of admins who all have access. So it's a you know group posting effort that is designed to get a community rallied around something uh, you know, off color, a YouTube star said someone in the public eye, a politician, perhaps that uh, said something that was inappropriate, um, you know, or non PC or just dumb or just bad behavior in general. And the interesting thing about these accounts is because, of course, it's Instagram and there are some limitations there is it's based on a visual meme, something that is describing the idea of the post and then what everybody is is who's following the account has to say about it. Now, you might say, all right, well, that's just kind of like meme stuff. But a lot of the accounts are quite serious. And the Atlantic article does a really good job. It has lots of examples of of really you know intelligent as far as the young person's view of life. And of course, there are many of them. But that sort of particularly important view of how they are seeing the news that they're getting. And uh, what Taylor... Uh, the um, author of the article kind of said is there's a really real common thread here and a few of them actually. And it's obviously teenagers want to avoid adults, right? So these sorts of things are something that are kind of going on behind the scenes. And, you know, the average mom might look at that account and be like, I don't know. I don't understand what this, what this is. So it's a little bit of a code thing. That's been going on for years. Teenagers always want to do that, but also distrust in what, they would consider an authority and that also includes the media. And a lot of that is kind of warranted. And a lot of that is coming down from older people telling them that they shouldn't trust the media. So that is, it seems to be a growing trend. Um, and, and then also the, the, the idea that, okay, well, if you're going to introduce some sort of a topic about, oh, you know, some social subject that is heavy and you are relying on a lot of uh, comments on an Instagram post, right, in one of these flop accounts, which is for the most part calling somebody out for doing something bad. You're going to get a lot of troll comments. That's the way it goes. People get mad. People, you know, it's 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 that sort of chaos that I think a lot of us think, oh, we're just always trying to get away from it. Well, there are a lot of young people who have never known life without online trolling and that sort of anonymity that allows you to act a certain way and maybe do things that you wouldn't have done otherwise. But where we feel like there's a choice, the younger you are, you know, the lines are a little bit more blurred. And then of course, because of doing things that you, that might be uncovered later, there's that whole, not always poor understanding, but often, um, uh, you know, incorrect understanding of long-term consequences of doing things. Uh, for example, saying something online, not getting a job because of it uh, years later in life. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, Shannon, I wanted to actually um, get your thought on this. Uh, the, the, the idea, uh, well, everybody's thought, but you first, the idea that, okay, there's, there's kind of this whole privacy thing going on, right? But starting an Instagram account and, you know, talking about stuff is like, that is not the privacy tool that you should be using if you actually care about locking yourself down and locking adults out of your life. No, hundred percent. It is not like my, my sister would probably think this is funny and she's the closest thing I, I know personally to a teenager. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just a little odd. I just went down a rabbit hole of reading some of these flop accounts and the kind of Instagram posts that they post. And a lot of it just seems like, you, you know, straight up opinions and um, a lot of hate and aggression towards, 
you know, folks that think differently from them, whether that's right or wrong, you know, that's up to them. That's totally cool. But um, if they're just trying to do this to steer clear of their parents, shouldn't they be using something that's encrypted, like signal to talk to their friends? Like, well, it just I'm seems sure like this I'm... is a way to error, you know, how they feel with the public. And But given that they're using a lot of their real names in their profiles, it's not necessarily private. I'm sure the peop- there are plenty of teens using encrypted uh, tools, and you don't know about them because they're using <laughs> encrypted tools, right? They're using WhatsApp, right? <laughs> or or yeah. Signal or, or or something, you know, so, something else. I, or I, I, I bet they're not. I bet I bet that's not true. Oh, I know there are teenagers I, using those things. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I, and I and I see I see teenagers. Um, and they just they just use unencrypted things all the time. Many so. do, yes. Yeah. The, the thing that bothers me about this whole story is how is this different from your wacky Uncle Lenny posting some lunatic thing on Facebook mm-hmm. well, and, and people people picking it up and using it as a source? If I have this right, it's uh, I don't like the olds uh, looking down their nose at me. I want to talk to my friends away, which is a perfectly normal sure. behavior at that age. Uh, I don't trust the media because... It is just one person's opinion, and we've seen how many times articles end up being wrong. Uh, so I want to talk talk it out. And there's this idea that I'll go into this corner using security through obscurity that nobody looks at. It started as just let's make fun of these memes, and it's become a, a place where we can be free to discuss. But it's replicating every single community on the Internet going back to news groups. They always start as a niche place where everybody's like, oh, everybody here gets it. Everybody here understands me and we can have a free-flowing exchange of ideas and discover truths that we couldn't otherwise because of the special nature of this area. And then it becomes more popular and then the problems of community management pop up and then it turns into a troll fest. And I don't think flops have gotten there yet, but then it becomes a place of flame wars uh, and the fundamental nature of it changes and it loses that early promise. The thing that scares me most about this article, and granted, it's The Atlantic writing about teens. So there may be a slanted <laughs> view here. I, you know, We're only getting this, this view on it in this article. But what, what scares me is this idea of, well, I don't trust the people who deal in facts because sometimes they're wrong, which is not, not inaccurate. So mm-hmm. I'm going to go talk with like-minded people because then we can disagree about stuff and come to an agreement that's true. That's called also mob rule. Where, where you, yeah. When you get a bunch of people who maybe even disagree to agree that something is true, that doesn't also that also does not make it true. That just means you've all decided to agree on it. We're, we're, we're getting further and further away from you know the fourth estate. We're getting you know the, the, the reporters used to have to take you know tertiary sources for a reason, right? Before they could they could report on anything, regardless of your viewpoint, whether you, you took a liberal newspaper or a conservative newspaper or or news media or news media outlet, uh, you could be fairly well assured that the, the that what's being reported on uh, was factual to at least the reporter, right? And verifiably so. And you know, then Facebook started and all this nonsense that we're in the middle of right now, where it's it's okay to simply say things, and uh, you know, it gets very Orwellian. You can change the past by simply saying the same thing over and over again, no matter you know, whether yeah. it's true or not. And this this feels like that to me. The, this the, feels like 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 teenagers who are trying to come into grips with the world and and they're not quite ready for it and they're not they're not consulting adults so they don't really know what's real and what's not real and just repeating things over and over again until a meme becomes reality. 
It sounds like confirmation bias to me. Yes. I think it's, it's an, it's a symptom of the lack of teaching critical thinking to kids, Mm -hmm. uh, which has declined over the years so that they are trying to learn how to think critically here. They're, 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 they've got the right impulse. Like I'm not just going to accept things from the media. Let's talk it out. Uh, and, and that's the right impulse, but they don't have the right tools to do it. That's that if they don't have the right tools to do it, that's going to turn out poorly. There's, there's, there's always been fringe media. There's always been the nation and national review and mother Jones. Uh, but people just didn't come across it as much. If you're not prepared to think critically, you are more likely to accept something you read online as being from a credible source. And then when it turns out not to be true, decide to distrust everyone when what you should be doing is classifying things in your head like, oh, this is a source that I usually can trust. This is a source that maybe I can trust. And this is a source I don't know. And so I'm not going to trust it until I find out otherwise. Nobody wants to hear an old man say this, but I'm going to say it anyway, so I apologize ahead of time. Back in my day, <laughs> when I was in high school, we, we were required to take a debate course. Mm. There was a requirement. I had to do it that in college. I hated it. Well, yeah, but you did it. I, I, I was not required of it. Yeah. Although I am slightly younger than y'all as well, but I was, we weren't required to take a debate course or like a public speaking class either. Mm-hmm. No, nothing like that, which teaches you to, you know, base your arguments on facts and, you know, go into a library and learn all yeah. of those different things. Like we didn't have to do that. I ended up taking a, um, like a, I forget the name for it, but an extra class just for like the extra credit of elective, having that class. Yeah. Yeah, an elective, uh, just so that I could get a little bit of knowledge as far as public speaking goes. And that was the only time in school, including university, that I had a chance to kind of come up with an argument and share that information. And I had to, like, have source material in there that was not Wikipedia Mm -hmm. and all that kind of information. And um, Wikipedia was out when you were taking this class? Well, in college, it was. Uh, (laughs) And my journalist journalist teacher strictly said if you Pluto. use wikipedia i will fail <laughs> you <laughs> <laughs> notes we did you guys ever have mock trial in high school oh yes yeah, no. yeah. that was like Absolutely. a that was our senior year was yeah, our big we, mock trial we never had that uh, we, we, we weren't required to take any debate or anything in high school. In college, the University of Illinois required a rhetoric class or a speech communications class, which is, you know, sort of – same. It doesn't same have thing. to be a debate class. It's just anything – like mock trial works and, yeah. and what Shannon just described works. I mean it, anything that gives you a tool to put in your tool belt that allows you to like – not pick up the newspaper and, or, and immediately accept what's there or not watch something on the internet. And, well, and it's interesting it. you say that about a newspaper because I remember in junior high I had a I had back when it was called social studies, which included a lot of civics. One of the things we had to do for the year was to bring in a news article and then break it down, like what the story was talking about, you know, what what were the facts, what was the impression or the, or the the not not the opinion but kind of what the view was was basically set on and th- we also did the same thing for political cartoons we had to bring in the each week had to bring in a political cartoon and break down the Ooh, symbolism like and metaphors that were explicit or implicit in the cartoon and write it down yeah, i mean it was, you had to write it down then you had to explain it to the class i remember in my speechcom class I, I cited the economist and scientific american as sources and the professor told me to go back and do it over she she was saying those are sources that tell you where to find sources. 
So those are great oh, sources to find out the sources you should cite. Go find out where they got their information, and then you That's can cite that. Uh, and it really pushed me to realize, like, oh, wait, you know, The Economist can get something wrong. Scientific American can get something wrong. I need to cite the actual paper mm-hmm. from the scientific. I need to cite the actual economist's work uh, that they're talking about. And it was oh, something yeah. I never would have thought about if I hadn't taken that course. Same with my journalism teacher. And there's been, even with ThreatWire, which I currently do and currently use a lot of sources for it, there's been multiple times when I'll run across some factual information on a news source that's incorrect. And I don't know that until I link, I click through to whatever the PDF document from the government is mm-hmm. or whatever I'm trying to read up on. And then I find the actual information and I'm like, okay, I'm going to link directly to this instead, uh, because then people are going, I'm just going to add to that incorrect information to my own audience, which, you know, makes me lose some of my own personal credit in my own, my own mind. And that's an, that's an echo chamber. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, just to just sort of uh, dovetail a little bit off of the original uh, Atlantic article, when I was doing some research, um, like you did, Shannon, I was like, why are all these flop accounts? Where have I been? I came across an article, this is from the New York Times, about a year ago, um, called The Secret Social Media Lives of Teenagers. Also very fascinating. I learned about an app called Vaulty, uh, which I really should have known about, where it, you could more or less hide photos that you don't want your parents to see and then give them a fake password so they think they're an administrator, but you're actually still hiding photos from them. Very clever. Uh, but uh, but it also cited a UCLA study that was from 2016 that was kind of looking at teenage brains in general and how they are different than children's brains, but not adult brains quite yet, and how the you know sort of cognitive function uh, is unique. And found the study found that uh, teens' brains focused on reward processing and social cognition, similarly activated when they thought about things that maybe you associate with power, money, or sexual activity, or a photo that receives lots of likes on social media. So there is some sort of a hmm. firing thing that's going on where you're getting yeah you're getting kind of that. Um, that uh, that boost that you don't necessarily know is making you feel powerful. Yeah, and money, it, sex, and likes. It's right. <laughs> <laughs> a great movie. Yeah, <laughs> sex, drugs, and likes on Instagram is the, very, is the new way of living. Good documentary series on teens that will be upcoming on DTNS Labs. But 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 yeah, <laughs> you know the whole thing is is I I I think that this whole idea of flop accounts and. Uh, you know, young people saying, oh, we don't like the way this is going is, you know, in one sense, it's like, yeah, kids do this. But we are also in a climate politically, socially and otherwise, where more and more people in positions of power are being outed as people who have abused positions of power. Mm-hmm. So you really can't blame this to be a trend that is not going away. And the tools are are are, are creating whether it's uh, you know, how realistic it is or not is creating that that feeling of we're self-sufficient, strength in numbers, wisdom of the crowd, which is mm. rife with holes, as we've all discussed. Yeah. The teenage the, when I was a teenager, I thought I was a fully formed adult mm-hmm. <laughs> and my your brain is not done forming. So you feel that way. It's perfectly normal to feel that way. But you don't have quite the inhibitions yet. You you don't you aren't able to uh, resist taking risks as easily. Um, 
which is you know evolutionarily sound it it allows us to do kind uh, a lot of great stuff as a species but it, it, it's it's worse than that I'll, I'll dig this up and send it out to everybody but the um the, there was a study done about 10 years ago and i'm not i assume it's still valid i don't know where they they went through the cognition process and um the the there's a distinct pathway that has to get built out before you can start making what Tom, what you're referring to as adult decisions, right? Mm -hmm. Your moral centers don't form until your early 20s. Mm -hmm. And it was shocking to read this stuff. And it doesn't mean you don't have morality. A lot of times, if I were, when I was a teen, if you would have said this to me, like, screw that, of course I know what right and wrong is. That's not what it means. It means it's not fully formed. It's not fully formed. You don't understand moral consequences. Yeah. You don't understand that by insulting her, it's going to come back in in a way that you're not expecting. Well, and you may understand that, but it's just not as fully formed yeah, and, yeah. and, and gut instinct. And, and yeah. you won't realize that until later, right? It, it was a fascinating read. So yeah. we'll send it. All right, let's move on to our final discussion. Uh, this is the one suggested by our patrons at the advisor level. Uh, if you're at the advisor level, among the many perks you get, uh, you get to suggest topics and then vote on them to be included in the roundtable. And the one that got the most votes this time was what unanticipated side effects is GDPR having on businesses in Europe as well as in the U.S.? Now, I'm just going to go over some of the side effects. They may or may not be unanticipated, but I think it gets to the heart of, of what the topic should be. Uh, GDPR went into effect on May 25th. We've talked about it a lot on the show, but if you're unfamiliar, it's a privacy requirement. It requires companies... Uh, to handle customer data in a way that ensures privacy, that ensures consent, and gives back some control to the customer over their data. It only applies to the European Union, but any company with an EU customer has to obey it for its EU customers, which means in a lot of cases, it's just easier or cheaper to apply it to all your users. Mm -hmm. Uh, Also, you can't force consent for data collection unless the collection is essential to run the service. So if I've just got a blog up, I can't say to read my blog posts, you have to give me your social security number because it is not essential for people to read your blog to know their social security number, right? So that that's going to play in here. A few of the interesting side effects so far are an increase in security breach reporting, which you might have guessed because it requires you to report security breaches within 72 hours of becoming aware of the breach. So in the UK alone, Breach reporting went from 400 a month in March and April to 700 in May when GDPR went effect at the end of the month to 1750 in June. Uh, Also, some overcautiousness. And and this is one I'd like to get y'all's reaction on. There's some anecdotes of companies requiring small vendors to have certifications and other paperwork in order to reduce liability. It's not something that GDPR requires, but... Companies are somewhat responsible under the GDPR for what their vendors do with their customers' data. Uh, and so I'm curious if, if you guys have heard uh, of that or if that makes sense to you, this sort of chilling effect of a company saying, yeah, we'd like to hire you. Give us your ISO certifications and all this other stuff that they normally wouldn't have asked for. <laughs> well, it does make sense to me in in light of things that have happened, for example, with Facebook and and the different vendors that one of their applications was using for, uh, what was it, the personal information that was leaked. Yeah. Uh, they had a vendor involved and things like that, of course, they're going to have access to that information. So they need to make sure that 
a vendor is protecting that information or they are allowing uh, people to opt into sharing that information with them as opposed to having to opt out. Uh, so it does make sense that they would need to abide by that just to you know, ensure that they don't end up not complying with GDPR in the future. Although those particular instances could tie back to our moral uh, conversation, <laughs> totally good. Yeah. Yeah, they could yeah. pass. They could pass all the, all the, the you know, the. the but what, the what if you're a small two or three man company uh, mm-hmm. and you provide uh, some login form validation? That's all it is. Uh, mm-hmm. And and the, and the company says, you know, just to be GDPR safe, we need these five certifications. And you're like, we we can't afford the time or money to get those certifications, and you lose the yeah. contract. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I I'm with Shannon. I think that's it. It's a legitimate cross the bear. You can't expect there to be no hurdles in a company that's trying to make money. Right. Also, and, and, uh, the information commissioner's office is advising organizations to please don't not report every breach, but determine <laughs> whether each breach is indeed required to be reported under the rules of GPR, GDPR. Because companies no, are like, we don't know. High call Here. volume. We're just, <laughs> just going to report it. Time. That way we can't get in trouble. Uh, also, <laughs> Uh, ICO <laughs> advising companies to use all 72 hours to gather information. Don't just report immediately because then you might be able to find out whether you need to report it or not. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's good that they have three days at least yeah. to report things. That's It's nice that they have that ability so that they can do some research because if, if they end up getting inundated with reports – 24-7 from companies who don't necessarily need to report some kind of breach or some kind of leak of information or whatever it might be, then the the people involved on researching these reports when they are received are just going to get completely boggled by all of the information that's coming in and they might yeah. miss something. So it is very wise to take that three days and make sure that you're researching everything you need to before sending in that information. But I think it would be, it's incumbent on the EU to provide clear <laughs> guidelines of what you will and won't get in trouble for. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I think that's what's causing this. All right, let's get to the heart of the matter, the effects on companies. There were some early reports that Facebook and Google were seeing more advertising directed their way uh, away from smaller ad exchanges for the same reason that we were talking about with the vendors. Companies were like, well... Google and Facebook are really good at getting consent. So we're going to buy our ads through there because it's going to be less trouble than these smaller companies that we're not sure whether we trust that they're in full compliance. Mm -hmm. Uh, That doesn't seem to have carried on. We haven't seen a lot more about that. So maybe that was just a first week's reaction. I haven't seen much more about that. But we have seen people mentioning GDPR in their earnings reports and elsewhere. eBay says it's seeing minimal disruption to date from GDPR to their third-party advertising revenue in Europe. So that would imply that, well, okay, maybe that Google-Facebook thing was a blip. Facebook, on the other hand, says that European monthly active users and daily active users may be flat to slightly down in Q2 as a result of GDPR. However, they say we do not anticipate these changes will impact advertising revenue. Uh, They also indicated that their profit margins would be reduced because of the cost of GDPR-related maintenance, ongoing maintenance to to comply with it. Uh, Twitter said the law will contribute to a further decline in its active users of the service. Uh, Wix.com, which is a web design company, said it hasn't seen any impact on its business as a result of GDPR. Google, very carefully, Sundar Pichai said, too early to tell. We don't know. Not enough data in. We're a big data company. We don't know. Uh, And then the VP of marketing at at a company called Janrain, Uh, said that in their consent reconfirmation outreach, 
Less than 8% of folks in the database declined permission to serve them full advertisements, and only 5% went as far as to deny the right to record any data. They said most people were fine with it as long as they knew what we were recording. However, email was a different matter. On their email lists, only 22% of those who began the double opt-in process completed it. Uh, so seeing a, a mixed reaction there. I think this you know, obviously isn't every company out there, but it kind of gives you an overview of, of how the companies are reacting. Any surprises for either of you guys in there? Not really. I mean, I, I, I think it's... So I, I want to get this right. Uh, Europe, the European Union and the United States view um, the legalities of interacting with customers differently. Uh, the U.S.'s laws are designed to protect the consumer. The European Union's laws are to designed to protect companies i believe if i'm not if i'm not well the, the gdpr is designed to protect the consumer it is but it's yes that and and and, and that's what i'm trying to get to mm-hmm. so it's it's it, this is kind of new territory for them i see in in a way so it they did it in a way where it doesn't feel onerous um you know we've we've made changes in our company to to you know be ready we're not in europe yet but just to be ready for it and it's not really a big deal so we'll see. Well, there have been uh, several companies, uh, and you know, some of them are publications that all of a sudden went dark, right? In, in certain places um, where the EU uh, GDPR rules went into effect. And that's another question. Not every company thinks it's really advantageous to change too much of its model that's working well if enough of their customer bases outside of these rules anyway. I, I imagine somebody's going to do the, the calculus between like, okay, so if we don't comply with GDPR and we just turn Europe off, what does that do to our bottom line yeah. versus the amount of money we would spend to implement? And so I think probably everyone's having that conversation. Tronk, uh, the former Tribune company before it decided to be called Tronk, uh, owners of the LA Times, Chicago Tribune, uh, news, news outlets like that, decided to block all European readers. Uh, Lee Enterprises, which runs the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, d- decided to block all European users. USA Today offers an alternate version, as does NPR, to European users, which is interesting because Catchpoint said that U.S. pages on average are loading at 10.22 seconds per page, while after GDPR, Europe's web pages are loading in just over half a second. Wow. So making someone GDPR compliant, and and it's probably a a bigger deal than just, you know, not running advertisements. It made people look at their pages and say, well, what is all this stuff in here? Some of the stuff we're not using anymore, get rid of it. Mm -hmm. Whereas companies that didn't do that uh, still have a lot of cruft that just builds up over the years, as well as more intrusive advertisements and data collection. Well, I've noticed a, a similar experience, which doesn't involve GDPR, but um, I use Brave Browser on my phone, and Brave Browser automatically blocks um, sure. third-party advertisements, cookies, all sorts of different things like that before they even reach your device. And in that sense, it does save a lot of time. So given that they've pretty much knocked off, what was that, 10 seconds off of the load <laughs> yes. time? That's a lot of That's time. Lot. That Just means about, that they yeah. had... They had a lot of third-party information on the back end, and some of that could have been very insecure given that there's malvertising, which is still a very prominent uh, a portion of malware that's available in, in the public whenever you're browsing around online. Uh, so in, in that sense, 
like it's a really positive thing for consumers, given that you're going to receive your load times a lot quicker now, as opposed to those 10 second things. I mean, over time, that's going to save you like what a year of your life. Makes me want to <laughs> VPN to Germany just to surf the web, right? I know, right? <laughs> Uh, Privacy Badger, uh, which I use, uh, has a similar effect, right? Because it it just blocks anything that it thinks is tracking you across sites without your permission. And you can tell it, no, that's okay. You you can let them track me. It's fine. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it gives you control. But again, speeds up those page loads. So Uh, the final thing to mention is who is. Uh, We've mentioned this on the show before, but it has not been resolved. There's still a disagreement over whether gathering information for DNS records uh, violates the Mm -hmm. GDPR. Uh, and, And some registrars are no longer collecting the address records and things that ICANN requires. ICANN has gone to court in the EU to ask the EU to, to define them as an exception, saying, no, if you register a domain name, we require a mailing address. Uh, and we always have. And, you know, it, it's a, you, need, you need to rewrite things. And some people are saying that really all they need to do is rewrite their contracts. But uh, there, there is some legal confusion over that. Doesn't, doesn't having a... Um I forgot what it's called, but the basically protected registrant doesn't that get rid of the problem? Yeah, but it's all about what you, it's about what you ask for. ICANN requires the registrars to ask for it. Right. Protected right. registrants can then keep it from being displayed publicly, right, right, but it's still collected. Yeah, you don't have a choice in the manner manner when you when you sign up for a domain, you have to give them a physical address of, of some kind. Yeah. And some some domain registrants, um, they actually send you a postcard in the mail to ensure that you actually yeah. live there. Which and you great. have to like put in that code or whatever it might be on their website. Mm-hmm. Um, which personally, given that I have to pay like seven dollars a year or something like that just to protect my privacy and my physical address, because I don't want nobody showing up at my front door. Uh, I don't think it's very fair. I don't think that we should have to have physical addresses. I know why it's there. I understand why I can, you know, requires you to have that information. I just wish that it was optional. The, the, the flip side of that conversation, of course, is if you remove any information from a domain registrant, they're free to do whatever they want with the impunity. Exactly, exactly. And that's why they require that information from you so that you, they, so that they're able to report it if there is some kind of law breaking or something like that. Well, and theoretically, though, it doesn't. you don't need a home address to provide domain name system service. So yeah. it violates that forced consent uh, law, which is why I think they're saying, well, we can redo the contracts that – describe why we need it uh, better, that, that make it a, an element that is required. But this is where GDPR does break down, is there, there is a lot of vagary in the rules that people don't know how it's going to be enforced because it hasn't been tested in court. There's no precedence on it. Not yet. <laughs> Not yet. Well, that's it. Uh, this has been a fantastic roundtable episode. Thanks to everybody for joining us. Yes, in fact, thanks... Extra special thanks to Shannon and Rob for being with us today. Shannon, we'll start with you. Let folks know where they can keep up with everything you're doing outside of these wonderful roundtable shows. Absolutely. Um, so you can find me over on techthing.com. That's T-E-K-thing.com. We recently, just on Thursday, reviewed the brand new Lenovo Smart Ooh. Display. So that's the one that comes with Google Assistant built into it. And it was actually really cool. But I you'll have to watch that. it. You'll have to watch it to listen to our comparison to the um, Amazon Echo Show, which we did make a comparison to. So that was pretty fun to do. Also on Hack5, H-E-K-5.org, I've been doing ThreatWire as usual 
discussing all the security and privacy topics that are going on right now. And the thing that I've been doing as a hobby for the past couple of months is my new YouTube channel. It's youtube.com slash Sailor Snubs. I know it's a ridiculous name, but I am obsessed with Sailor Moon. So it's all about Sailor Moon, the anime and manga from Japan. So if you're interested in learning about it, you can definitely check out my channel. It's youtube.com slash Sailor Snubs. Please subscribe because I'm going to do a giveaway when I hit 500. Yay! Yay. <laughs> Rob DeMillo, always nice to have you on the show. You're such always a nice good roundtable guest. You bring yeah. knowledge. Uh, what? Where, where, I bring the- a lack of hair. <laughs> well, but that's you know that's you know you can have both. You can have mm-hmm. both. In fact, I think there's you know. Well, anyway, I won't get into hair loss. Uh, but uh, let folks know where they can keep up with everything else you do outside of these shows. You can you can find most of the stuff about me on about me com uh, or bob.me actually or rob demello uh, and then i am uh cto at nimblecollective.com we're doing animation up in the cloud it's a ton of fun so check that out too Good excellent time. hey folks would you like more of these kinds of shows do you like this uh our next milestone is just 2500 bucks away on patreon would get us up to two roundtable episodes a month uh join on in the fun or up your pledge and you can get some cool perks like the show good day internet which includes dtns and a whole lot more exclusive columns sarah lane just posted one yesterday for the associate producer level and there's all kinds of stuff like being able to vote on the roundtable topics available at patreon.com dtns if you want to get a hold of us you got a question you got a comment you just want to get something off your chest we'll take it our email address is feedback at dailytechnewsshow.com if you'd like to join us live monday through friday at 4 30 p.m eastern 2030 utc put it on your calendar or find out more at dailytechnewsshow.com slash live back on monday with lamar wilson talk to you then ah. this show is part of the frog pants network Get more at frogpants.com. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.